This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Judges chapter 4. We're going to talk today about fear. Everybody, everybody is afraid of something. Every, Every person I know deals with some kind of fear that keeps us from doing some things that we know we probably should be doing. Either we're afraid to take the risks, we're afraid to be obedient, whatever it might be, we're afraid what people might think of us. Uh, We all have some fears that we struggle with and we deal with, and we're going to talk about that today in this next story in the book of Judges. And let me just go ahead and I'll say it, we've said it several times before, I'll say it again. The book of Judges has some stories in it that um, young children don't need to hear in the way we're going to present it here. All right, So just kind of keep that in mind. It's kind of a PG-13 almost rated story. I'll try not to make it too gory, but it's got some gory stuff in it like we had last week. Uh, there's a gory story today, and uh, the guys like that, you know, going, yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. And um, we'll, uh, we'll get to that this morning, but just letting you know that. That's why we have such a wonderful, wonderful children's ministry in Cowabunga Cove uh, for your kids. Um, leadership is in this story too. Leadership has been defined as the ability to inspire or motivate others to brilliant effort. That's what leaders do. Leaders don't do all the work. Leaders inspire others to do what needs to be done. And we're going to see leadership in the story today. Um, uh, And it's about, this story is about, the heroes in this story really are a couple women. And uh, the story is about a, a woman that God uses Uh, to motivate a fearful man to lead an overthrow uh, of an oppressing king and uh, this other king that had superior military strength. Uh, But it's also in the story is about faith and it's about the willingness of another woman to take some risks that need to be needed to be taken. Look with me at chapter five or excuse me, chapter four, verse one. I'm going to refer a couple times to chapter five and I'll tell you why. Chapter five is a song. If you look at the beginning of chapter 5, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang. And here's the, all of chapter 5 is a song that they sang after what happened in chapter 4. So I'll refer to it a couple of times. Verse 1 of chapter 4, The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. He, Ehud was the, the judge that we looked at last week. Remember, he, uh, he, built, he made the sword and he stabbed uh, the king Eglon in the, in the belly and uh, lost his sword in doing so, and but over, overcame the enemy uh, that way. And, and, and during his lifetime, it says at the end of chapter uh, 3, verse 30, it says that the, the land was peaceful for 80 years. That was the longest period of time, by the way, that they had peace during the period of the judges, 80 years. Uh, they're going to have times of peace for 20 years and, and so forth. 80 years was a long time. After these 80 years, it says again what we've seen before. Then again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So God responds with their rebellion and their idolatry as he's done before. He said, well, you got to learn a lesson. So God, it says, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Hazor is in the northern part of Palestine. The commander of his forces, his general, was a man by the name of Sisera. And Sisera lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites, 
after they've been sold under this guy and they, and they live under his oppression, it says they cried out to the Lord as they've done before, as they'll continue to do in the book of Judges because Jabin, this Canaanite king, had 900 iron chariots. Now, that does not mean that the chariots were made of iron. The chariots of iron can't be pulled by horses, all right? just would have been an impossible weapon. What it means by chariots of iron is that instead of wooden wheels, their wheels were iron, which meant their wheels were virtually unbreakable and superior to anything that the Israelites had. He had 900 of these chariots, and he harshly oppressed them for 20 years. So they begin crying out to God. They're over this oppression. God help us. In the meantime, it says, verse 4, that Deborah, a woman who was a prophetess, meaning she would receive revelation from God, they didn't have the word like we have today. So how did they hear from God? He would speak to prophets and to prophetesses, women, uh, who would hear from him, and then they would be able to give out the word of God to the people. This is what God is saying. And, and you say, well, is it unusual for there to be prophetesses? They were not nearly as many as the prophets, as the men who were prophets, but they were sprinkled about in the Old Testament. Philip in the book of Acts, his daughters were prophetesses. Uh, so we do see them and hear about them, although they weren't the norm, they were there. She was a prophetess. She was married to a man named Lipidoth. She was judging Israel at that time, and it was her custom to sit under the palm tree of Deborah. She had a tree named after her. This is where Deborah sits and where she does her judgments. This is where Deborah holds court, if you will, under a shade tree, a palm tree, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her for judgment. So they would go to her at this place. They knew that daily she would be there. She's been given wisdom by God to be a judge, and she goes and they bring their cases and their disputes and so forth to her. And it was common in the Middle East, and I think still is today, for, for them to, you know, back in the, those days, they didn't have buildings with air conditioning and so forth. So they would find an open air place where they would get some breeze in the shade, and that's where she held court. Well, verse 6 um, by the way, let me, let me back up and give you the first point this morning. Sometimes God surprises us with his choices, right? We, we've been reading this book of Judges, and, and this is the only woman in the book of Judges who's a judge. And we say, well, is that, is that how God usually works? It wasn't normal, but it's what God did. And, and one of the lessons uh, from that is that you can't put God in a box, right? If you try to figure out God and know everything God's going to do, uh, you're going to be surprised from time to time. time to time. At the same time, and this truth is so important to understand, if you understand that first one, that God surprises us sometimes, you can't put them in a box. At the same time, God will not contradict his word. God's given us his word, and God has said, this is how things are going to be. And so God, even though we can't, if I can say it this way without, I hope this is not offensive to God, but if we can say it this way, we cannot put God in a box, but he kind of puts himself in one if you will. He, he's, he's bound by his word. If God says it, he's going to do it. He's not going to go outside of his word. Scripture says this in several places. Psalm 119, verse 89. Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed. Think of super glue, all right? It's firmly fixed in heaven. It's not going to budge. It's not going to move. Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Ooh, let, let's kind of chew on that one for a second. Because there are a lot of people, people claiming to be Christians, say, well, I don't know that I can believe everything in the Bible. You know, 
I don't know. I, I really have a hard time believing that story about, you know, Jonah and, and the whale. You know, I really have a hard time understanding or believing that story about creation. Whatever it says, the scripture here says, how much of God's word is truth? Somebody tell me the entirety. All of it is truth. That means from Genesis 1-1 to the very end of Revelation, it's truth, whether we like it or not. And all your righteous judgments endure forever. Whether we understand it or not, it is truth. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers. We're seeing that now as the weather turns colder. And what used to be green in our lawns is now going to turn brown uh, for the wintertime. The grass withers, the flowers, flowers fade, but the word of God remains for how long? Forever. Right? God will not contradict his word. He has set some boundaries on some things. And, and that truth is so important that God's word never changes, that it is his word and he doesn't contradict it. Why is that so important? Everything hinges on that truth. Everything. You think about it for a moment. If it wasn't true that God doesn't contradict his word, that God's word doesn't last forever, if that's all, all not true, then everything that we think about, we believe about, it's all, it all becomes subjective. You know what subjective means? Well, that's up to my interpretation of it. Subjective means, well, this is how, this is how I feel about this. And, that, and as if that becomes the truth, how you or I feel about something. That's subjective truth. And we're seeing that kind of subjective, what I call feeling-driven spirituality becoming prominent amongst many denominations and, and churches and teachers today. So let me say this. What, what matters is, is not how you and I feel about something. That's not what's important. What matters is this. What has God said? What's God said? And if God said it, then that's what matters. We know that God is unchanging, don't we? The Bible tells us that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I am the Lord, he said, and I do not change. Now, you and I change all the time, don't we? You and I change frequently we change our opinions i'm so glad i have already voted you know because i was just kind of up and down and this way and that way and what am i going to do and how can i vote for this and how can i do that how and so i just went over the other day thursday and just cast my vote and it, it's, i can't change that but we change about things that we think and we change about things that we feel all of the time god does not so here's the only time in judges that we find a woman leading the nation and as i said that's not the norm but, and, and I think it had to be surprising to Israel. They'd never seen that before. They'd think Moses and Joshua and Ehud and Othniel and Deborah. Uh, it was God's choice. And as we'll see, God uses her leadership. Why is she appointed? Because she's going to use her leadership to make a hero out of a fearful man. She's going to inspire a man to do an amazing thing. Right? Verse 6. So she summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali. He's a general, military general in Israel. And she says to him, Hasn't the Lord God of Israel commanded you, Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. She stops and she says, Listen, and apparently what we're seeing here is she says, I've already told you to do this. And she's a prophetess, so God speaks through her. And she says to him, Hey, what are you waiting on? 
I've told you, God's told you already, get 10,000 troops together and go to Mount Tabor and you're going to take on the enemy. And then God, he, he says, and continues what God has said. And God said, then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's forces, his chariots and his army at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you and I'll hand him over to you. Have you ever been to the southwest United States, Arizona, New Mexico? You ever driven through there? You go across on the interstates or whatever, and you go across bridges, and you'll see a sign, and, and they'll, they'll call them often washes, and they'll have a name, so-and-so's wash. You know? And what it is, is, is it's what this, this wadi uh, is here in, in Israel, in Palestine, uh, Kishon. It's a dry riverbed. And, and most of the time of the year, if you drive out in, the, out in the southwest, it's a very dry place. They don't get a lot of rain, not a lot of moisture. And so you're driving over dry riverbeds. I played golf back in the spring in Southern California in a riverbed, all right? Because very rarely does water come through there. Um, that's what this place was. It didn't have water except when there was the rainy season. And then the water came through, and the water flooded, and the water rushed through there. But there was no water there. And so he says that's where his army, Jabin's forces, are going to be. And Barak, in verse 8, says to her, Deborah said, you need to go down there, and this is what God says he's going to do. And he looks at her and he says, only if you'll go with me. That's what he said. Will you go with me, please? Hold my hand. I'm scared to go without you. That's what he says. If you'll go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Wait a second. She said, God has told you to do this. You don't need me to go with you. But I'm not going if you don't go. What was, what was this guy's problem? He was afraid. He was afraid. What's he afraid of? Those iron chariots. Those, we can't beat them. We don't have that kind of technology. So she sighs a deep sigh, and in verse 9, she looks at him and says, Okay, I'll go with you, but because you're not going to obey God like God said to obey him, you're not going to just go, God, you said it, I'll go do it. You're not being obedient to him. You'll receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. Not only are you not going to receive the honor, but you know who's going to get the honor? A woman. Not you. A woman. And she wasn't speaking about herself, by the way. It's somebody else that we'll see in a few moments. Uh, jot this down in your notes. Fear prevents us from obeying God. Fear prevents us. And what overcomes that fear? Your next note is that faith overcomes that fear with obedience. So, Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are two Jewish Israelite tribes. Plus, we read in chapter 5, the tribe of Issachar, that's also in the northern area. They sent soldiers as well. He gathers 10,000 men, and they followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Fear. When we live by faith and act obediently, we're going to see that God does what he says he would do. And God said, I will go with you. I will, go be, I will hand him over to you. Now look with me at verse 11. Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites. He moved away from his family from down south. He moved up north. Why? Well, we're going to find out why. 
He moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zenanim, which was near Kadesh. Now, that's I've put parentheses around that verse in my Bible because I read that and I went, it doesn't fit with the story. You know, Deborah and Barak and Jabin and chariots. We're, we're, this guy moving, this, this Bedouin uh, a nomad shepherd moving from the north and camping out from the south and camping out up north, what does that have to do with the story? But when you get to the rest of the story, you realize what an important detail it is. Now, back to the story of the war and what's happening with Deborah and Barak and Sisera. Verse 12, it was reported to Sisera, the Canaanite general with all the chariots, that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. He's got his army assembled on Mount Tabor. We would not consider it a mountain by our definition, our standard of mountains, about 1,800 feet, big hill, you know, not a whole lot bigger. You know, we, over there, they would look at Jockey's Ridge and call it Mount Jockey's Ridge. But it's not a mountain. It's a tall hill. That's where he's got his 10,000 men. Now, if you know anything, and I've never been in the military, but, I, but I've uh, stayed in the Holiday Inn. And I've, uh, <laughs> I grew up in a military family. My dad's a Marine. And, um, and I watch a lot of, you know, I've seen all the John Wayne movies, and, I, and I've read a lot of Civil War books. And here's one thing I know about military strategy on the battlefield. The side, the army that has the high ground, has the advantage. Need the high ground. Why? Because from the high ground, you can see everything the other guy's doing. From the high ground, it's, it's difficult now for them to come uphill and fight you, especially if they're in chariots, you see? We're in the safe position. Mount Tabor, that's where God told us to go. Deborah told me to go there. That's where we are. Good spot, good place, good strategy, Deborah. And then Deborah says, okay, now go down from the mountain. You see, down at the bottom of the mountain, along the banks of this empty river, this dry river, is Jabin with his 600 chariots. They can't get uphill and fight you. You've got the superior position. You go downhill and fight them. And I'm sure... Barak must have been thinking, I don't know, this is, you know, what are you thinking here? But she tells him to do that. Look what it says. Barak, Barak in verse 14, uh, Deborah said to Barak, move on, for this day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? There's the kicker. You're going to fight this battle, but please understand you're not alone. God has gone ahead of you and is getting things prepared for you to fight. God's going to give you the victory. So, Barak obeys. He acts in faith, and he comes down, brings his army down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. When we live by faith and we act obediently, God goes before us. So there they are coming down toward the chariots. Well, what's God doing? God has gone before them. What has he done? It's really interesting what God's done. Verse 15, The Lord threw Sisera and all his charioteers and all his army into confusion with the sword before Barak. Now there's a detail that's left out here, but it's given to us in chapter 5 and in verse 21. In chapter 5, verse 21, here's what God did. Sisera and his army are down there, and they're looking up, and they see coming from the high country, they see the Israelite army, 10,000 coming toward them. And they know they can beat them. They know they can, because they've got iron chariots. And so, and then all of a sudden, Sisera looks up and he goes, it's sprinkling. 
Somebody look on the radar and see if we're supposed to get a storm today. You know? They're not supposed to get any rain because it's not the rainy season, but all of a sudden they get a rain that must have been something like what we got here a few weeks ago. I mean a deluge. I mean it was bucketfuls coming down, and suddenly the dry riverbed becomes a, a rushing, mighty river, drowns their soldiers, some of them, washes some of them away, and turns the ground where that they're got these chariots staged on into a swamp, into a marsh, into a muck, and they cannot move their chariots. So here come the 10,000 soldiers. These guys can't do anything. They can't run. And, and look what happens. All right, we'll go back to chapter, chapter 4. They go into confusion. They, they're trying their best to get their horses to pull their chariots out of the mud, and they cannot do it. They're watching soldiers being washed downstream from the flood and drowning. God's gone before him. So they, they, um, it says that Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Heresheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Not a single man was left. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot. He survives, the general, and he takes off on foot to get away. All of his men are dead. All of, his, all of his chariots are worthless. He takes off on foot. And where is he going? He's running, it says. Sisera fled on foot, verse 17, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. He's the guy back up in verse 11 that moved north away from his family. Why did he move north? We're told here why he separated from his family. And it's not for good reasons, if you will. He fled to the, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. What had happened? He decided to align with the Canaanites rather than the Israelites. He did an alliance with them. He's now on the Canaanite side. Jabin knows this friendly Kenite is camped not far away. I'm going to go and find him and let them hide me in their camp. So he goes there and he meets this woman, Jael, who's the wife of this guy, Heber. And Jael went out, verse 18, to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come in with me, don't be afraid. And so he went into her tent and she covered him with a rug. She covered him with a rug because he was hiding. Right? Come in, and she covered him with a rug. He's on the floor of her tent. And he said to her, Please, Give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. He's been running on foot for who knows how long to get there. And he's just exhausted. I'm just thirsty. So she gives him a container of milk, gives him a drink, covers him again. And then he said to her, stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, because he knows they're going to be searching for him. He's the general. He got away. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man here? Say no. While he was sleeping from, from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silent, silently to Sisera. He's there laying asleep, and she hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. I can understand why Heber's not hanging out with her a whole lot, you know? I mean, this is a tough woman here hammers a tent peg 
through his head, through his temple, and nails him to the floor. He's dead. Well, Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, the general, the Israelite general, who's defeated the army. Now they're chasing this guy. And he arrives, they've chased him, and he comes here, and he, and he arrives in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. I don't think he was expecting to see what he was about to see. I'll show you the man you're looking for. And he walks into her tent, and there's this gruesome sight of this man with this tent peg through his head. We're talking probably a tent peg, you know. It's kind of sandy, rocky soil. It must have been pretty good size. Through his head, and he's dead. He finds in there lying with a tent peg through his temple. That day, God subdued Jabin. God subdued Jabin. Wait a second. The woman, Jael, isn't she the one that drove the thing through his head? Yep, but God subdued Jabin. Why? God used her to do his will, what he wanted to have done to defeat this enemy. The power of the Israelites continued to increase against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Now, here's, here's what I want to communicate here from these verses, this story about Jael. All right? Doing right may, be, may mean taking big risks. Acting in faith, overcoming your fears, may require you to take some risks. Now, there's a lot of us in this room that are not risk takers. You just, you won't. And I'm not talking about stupid risks. I think I can run across Highway 158 on July 4th afternoon. All right, that's, that's not a, that's a, you know. But there are other things that we may come to and God may lead us to that require us to take some risks. And some of you have some of those stories that you know that have happened in your life in, in, in many, many ways. But it may talk, be taking risks. And, and when you take risks, the choices are not always easy. For example, with this woman, she had to choose. She had to choose between Israel, the nation of Israel, and her husband. Because her husband had made this pact, this alliance with the Canaanites, and she didn't agree with it. She knew it was wrong. And she had to choose between her husband and Israel, or God, if you will. And I, I get a lot of times, a lot of, Ladies who maybe they're married to men who are not believers. And they, wa they want to know, one of the questions they want to know is, uh, am I responsible before God to be obedient to my husband, to be submissive to my husband? Do I need to do what my husband says? And the simple answer, without going into a long, long, long time talk about it, the simple answer, if I can boil it down, is the only thing you can't do that he tells you to do is if he tells you to do something that's sinful. If he tells you to do something that breaks God's word, that defies the word of God, that, that is an act of sin, you know, if he tells you to go in and rob the bank, you've got to say, you know, I can't do that. If he tells you to cheat on your taxes, when you fill out the taxes, let's cheat a little bit. I, I, that's, that's theft. I can't do that. She had to make a choice, and those choices are not always easy. She chose to go against her husband. She risked, think about this, what else did she risk? She risked being killed herself, didn't she? What if when I'm about to pick up that peg and pound that thing through his head, what if he wakes up and pulls out his sword and kills me? What if I miss? You know, I don't know how you, good you are with a hammer. Apparently she was pretty good and her husband knew it. Let me tell you why she was good. 
when nomads who travel and live in tents, when they travel from one place to another and they set up their households, they set up their tents, the man goes and takes care of the flocks, the herds. The woman sets up the tent. Picking up this hammer and driving tent pegs was something she did often and regularly. She was a pro with that hammer. She wasn't about to miss. She knew exactly how she needed to hit it. But it was a risk. And, and I think one of the lessons here for you and me, and this was part of what Andy brought to us a couple of weeks ago when he did the message on Shamgar and to who, who uh, struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You remember that? And the lesson was, what's God put in your hand? What's God given you to do? Same thing is true with this. The point is God can take, take a mundane skill and use it to bring victory. A mu- driving tense pegs into the ground. We never would think of that as being something that conquers an enemy, that wins a battle, that turns someone from a nobody into a hero. But it did for this woman. She took the skills, whatever the skills are that you and I have, God wants to use those. Now, please understand, don't translate this into, God wants me to put some things through people's heads that I don't like. All right, That's not what this is about. So the question I want to leave you with in this part of the message today is this. What are your fears? By the way, this woman, Hagar, remember when Deborah said uh, to, to Barak, okay, you're going to go down, I'm going to go with you, but the Lord will, will, will sell Sisera into a woman's hand. You're not going to be the hero here today. It's going to be a woman. That's what happened. That's who J.L. is. In fact, in the song that they sang in verse 24 of chapter 5, the, one verse of the song says, J.L. is most blessed of women. The wife of Heber the Kenite, she is most blessed among the tent-dwelling women. She was the hero of the day. But we have to overcome fears. Barak had fears. What are the things in your life that come up and block you from being victorious over the enemies of your soul? What are the things that you're afraid about that, that bring you anxiety? You say, I cannot, I just can't go there, God. I can't do that. A lot of us, it's fear of sharing our faith with other people. Verbally telling somebody how God has changed my life and the gospel, and ah, I just can't, I'm not there yet. What's the faith? What are your fears? What are the things in your life that block you? The Bible tells us this in 1 John chapter 4, 18. Read that with me, will you? Perfect love casts out fear. All right? Perfect love casts out fear. Your deliverer, Christ Jesus, wants to lead you past your fears this morning. He wants to lead you to follow him, to believe him, to conquer those fears. So right now, maybe what I'd like you to do is is just in silence. Let's bow our heads and, and just for a moment... Be real about what your fears might be. And say to the Lord, God, here's my fear that keeps me down. Here's my fear that keeps me from conquering the enemies that come before me in my life. And open your heart to what he may have you to do to overcome it. You might want to write it down on your paper and your notes. Here's my fear. God, I need faith to overcome that.
Lord, help us overcome those fears. We all have them. Barak had fear of going against these iron chariots. I pray that you'd help us to be more like J.L. than Barak. But we're glad that he finally did go. And he did what Deborah said, this is what God wants you to do. And he accomplished a great thing. Help us to be that way as well. Now, look up here. Our children in Calabunga Cove are learning something that perhaps you didn't know. All of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is about God's plan to redeem fallen mankind. All of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about God's plan to redeem fallen mankind. And they're learning about that. And here in Judges, we're seeing the simple truth that God loves his people, that God hates their rebellion, that he hates their idolatry, he hates their immorality, but he listens every time to their cries. Every time they cry out to God, what does God do? Sends a deliverer sends a judge to come in and take care of things and bring them to a time of peace. And that's what the judges were with deliverers. Now, when Christ Jesus came, it was to be the final once and for all, he was to be the final once and for all deliverer for us. And while we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ did what? He died for us. Right? We're sin in our sin. We cry out to God. He delivers us, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us into a relationship with God. There is no other deliverer. There is no other way to find peace with God but through Christ. Now, if you know him today as your Savior, and probably most of us, I'm sure, fit into that category, you know him as your Savior, I want you to please know that he has delivered you and me to free us from the grip and the power of sin in our lives. And it's a grip that we battle every day. I do. I fight this stuff every day, just like you do. Wrong thoughts, wrong actions, wrong attitudes, wrong responses, things that don't please God. I battle that just like you do. And, and Jesus died to deliver us from that battle. But it's something we're going to battle with as Christians until the day we die. Why? Because we're not complete. Let me say it. How can I say it this way? When we shall see him, then we shall be like him, the Bible says. As long as we live in these physical bodies with the desires and, and the, the frailties uh, uh, that we have physically with this humanity that, that we're wrapped up in, we're going to struggle with this battle. But we've been delivered, which means that we have no reason to sin. We're like Barak. Why don't you just do what God said? Why do you have to have Deborah come along? Just obey God. As long as we do what God says. And when we do sin, the, the great thing is that we have Jesus. He's our advocate. He pleads our case before God and he reminds God. God, he, Rick, he, he's made a big mistake. He's wrong here in what he's done. He's made a wrong choice. But he has put his faith in me and he's confessing his sin and we're faithful and just to forgive him of that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's delivered us. But you may be here today, maybe you've never experienced that deliverance from your sin. And perhaps you're seeking God and what you hope will be a freedom from the power that now controls you. You say, that's what I need more than anything else, is to know this God in this way that you're talking about. The good news is that God wants to deliver you today, and he does that by 
by offering you his forgiveness and by offering you his new life that's only found in Christ. And you can receive that life right now by simply acknowledging to God, hey, I'm broken in my sin and I accept the promise of new life that comes when I believe, if I believe in Christ. Now, he doesn't make you perfect at that point in time in your life. None of us are perfect, at least not yet. But he will free you and he will change you and he will give you everlasting life. So if you're at that place right now that I need to trust Christ as my Savior, I'm seeking a relationship with God, and if that's how it's found, that's what I need to do, then as we bow our heads for a moment, I want you to simply to say to God from your heart something like this. Let's bow our heads, right? Say something like this to him. I'm broken by my sin. I need new life. I accept your son Jesus, believing that his death on the cross paid for me, to become your child. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.